Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang damang sangang namasami. Continuing on with blessings, and here we have some that are particularly for the family life. And this is the acknowledgement of the fact that we have something called a mother and a father. And these are very big realities in human existence. No mother, no father, no not, no nobody. <laughs> so all philosophical and religious traditions have articulated some relationship to the parents. And Buddhism also has. And the articulation of this, actually it's gone into in great depth by the Buddha. And he thinks it's profoundly important, your relationship to your parents, your attitudes, psychological disposition to your parents is very, very important. And it's important not just because you have a duty or something like this, but because it's your parents are, are large figures in your early development and they persist, that, that element persists through your life. So you're having to construct a well-reasoned relationship to your parents, your mother and your father. So he says, to be well caring of mother and father is a blessing. Interesting. I would say, of course, in earlier times, it really was very critical, the reliance of the elder generation on the younger generation and the younger generation on the older generation because there weren't all of this secondary resources for taking care of people, hospitals and etc. So if you didn't take care of your kin, then everything falls apart. So mothers and fathers, parents usually instinctively take care of their children. And you can see in the previous blessings, the duties of the parents are to make sure that their children are educated, trained, and instructed in virtue. And they have to do this for any number of years, perhaps even uh, 20 years or more, in order to fully train a human to be functional in this world and also to not to do things that would be destructive. And in their lives, they need skills. And whatever resources need to be put into that, that's what the parents have to do. So in these, this day and age, of course, we, we educate kids. They go to at least uh, high school, up to high school and beyond. Sometimes you can continue in education for anywhere 12 to 20 years. And uh, there's economic burdens to this as well, of course. Not a, sometimes to the individual, sometimes to the society in general, but it's obviously that humans place a high value on education. So then there's the reverse, that your parents have done much for you and 
and are obliged to. If you're going to have children, you must take care of them and be responsible. But you owe them a debt because you are, as a child, completely dependent on them. You don't survive without parents or caretakers. Sometimes, of course, parents die. Uh, sometimes they're incapable of caring for children, but somebody takes care of you as a child. And these caretakers are everything. Your well-being is a result of this, this caretaking. By the way, the Buddha himself, his mother died when he was eight days old. And he was raised by his aunt and uh, other relatives. His father was the, the king, uh, but there was an, a number of uh, women involved in raising him. And so I think he was acutely aware of the importance of mother uh, or somebody filling in for the mother. And that's, that's a voluntary act to take such good care of a child. And uh, so he is, he is saying that you need to respect the, the fact that it takes years and children are completely dependent on their parents and parents are willing to do this. And this is instinctive in the animal world as well. The animal will risk their life, the mother uh, and sometimes the father. In animal raising, it's quite often the mother alone that raises the, the beings, but uh, sometimes it's both. But they will risk their lives. Amazingly, they have absolute dedication, patience, and they have to train their offspring. So they will spend a good deal of time making sure that they are safe and making sure that they understand what is dangerous and what is not and teaching them the skills of how to keep themselves safe. So it's deeply imbued in nature itself. Humans are complicated. They're more, much more complicated than any other animal. They take much longer than any other animal to uh, gain independence and full sense of judgment. So one has to look at this picture seriously and reflect that your, your mother and father or those who were substitute for them, the caretakers of your childhood, however you might find them lacking in certain ways, they did keep you alive. And if you're grateful for the fact that you exist at all, then uh, you have to recognize a debt that you owe them something. One thing that you owe them and yourself is, is non-ill will. In uh, modern times, uh, and I would say more or less in the latter part of the, the last century, various psychological schools thought it would be helpful if people expressed their rage and anger against their parents. <laughs> And uh, quite often, uh, especially teenagers and so forth, do have hostility and anger towards parents, but also towards all kinds of aspects of society. This is just the nature of being immature. 
Sometimes that is not cleared up, that in other words, one doesn't become mature. One remains in a kind of a suspended animation of immaturity or a kind of a endless teenage attitudes. And people have trouble and they go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist or are sent to a psychiatrist and a psychologist. And quite often there's a very strong um, psychological school. You can trace it back to Freud perhaps, where a lot of blame was placed on mothers and fathers. Uh, all kinds of incredible misdirection was given for why your child is the way they are, blaming the parents. And later on we find out it has nothing to do with the parents at all, genetic trait, something like that. Simply uh, an ailment, brain ailment, etc. Nothing whatsoever to do with the parents or the raising. So we have to uh, correct this and uh, say, wait a sec. You have to take responsibility for your own life and whatever your parents did for you or neglected to do, you must, if you feel inadequate, then you must fulfill your own deficits. And one of the worst strategies that you can have is to feel justified in, in your rage or anger resentment against your parents. And some people will be surprised to hear that. They will think, but, but, but they, they did me wrong. They neglected me, etc. So shouldn't I be angry? No. <laughs> no, you shouldn't be angry. Because your ang who, who experiences the anger? You do. Your parents don't experience the anger. You do. And what does that anger feel like? And if you have not contemplated this, you should. What does anger feel like? The Buddha calls it an, it's an illness. It's a distortion of your thinking processes and your emotions. It's very harmful to you and can be harmful to others. So anger distorts your thinking process because you're unwisely attending to the faults, the faults of your parents, etc. And uh, that fault finding is not a healthy thing. Now you might think, well, you, you know, you can't just pretend everything is fine. You can't look at the world through rose-colored glasses, can you? No, you can't. But there's unwise attention to the fault and there's wise attention to the fault. So when you look at various things in the world, you look at a tree that has a crooked branch or something, are you angry at the tree? Do you have to be angry to see a crooked branch? Do you have to be angry to see that somebody isn't, isn't generous or is ill-behaved? Do you have to be angry to see that? No, you can easily see the faults of the world without anger. In fact, your, your capacity to have a balanced, accurate judgment of the the defects of the world and the perfections of the world and the beauty of the world is dependent on your emotional state. So it's not that you suddenly think that your parents were perfect at all. It's that you think through an understanding emotion that doesn't damage you. 
So your parents are riding on your shoulders for your whole life. The Buddha gives this simile that you're carrying your parents on your shoulders. You, you, if you carried your parents on your shoulders the rest of your life, you still would not repay the debt that you owe them. So the debt is that you, you exist and that you survive childhood. But the idea of carrying your parents on your shoulders is, of course, literally true. You carry them in your head, and you better make peace with them. And if you change that to a positive relation, an understanding relation, a compassionate view, a sympathetic view, even if they have great faults or failings, sympathetic view, because they may have had deprived situations themselves. They may have not had opportunities. They, they were simply ignorant. They didn't get trained, etc. So they, there's a reason why they were the way they were. And it, there's lots of social reasons and genetic reasons and reasons of time and place. And if they were unskillful, you can also realize that they dwelled in pain. So when a person is is not skillful emotionally, not skillful in their speech and their actions, don't have skills, life is painful. So life for them would have been painful and they would not have known how to change that because nobody deliberately inflicts pain on themselves if they know an alternative. They inflict pain on themselves because they don't know the alternative. They wouldn't do it if they knew it. So you need to reevaluate your relationship, your internal emotional relationship to your parents and say, it's no good carrying around any resentment or anger. I myself am harming myself this way. And if I thought, if I was resentful of my parents for being negligent or harmful, then I am now just doing it as my parents have done. I'm being neglectful and harmful to myself. So if I don't like it from others, why would I do it to myself? So you have to become your own mother and father. You are now in charge of your life. As an adult, now you have to be the kindly mother and the kindly father of yourself and the wise father and mother of yourself. You have to educate yourself, train yourself, and understand what is beneficial to you. So this is uh, what it is to be well-caring of mother and father. And the, the Buddha also expects that if your parents are materially impoverished and you have some means of wealth, then you should help them as well, share with them. If they're sick, that you should help them as well. And to teach them as well, if they are receptive to it. Now, mothers and fathers are sometimes not receptive to lessons from their children. Although, lots of mothers and fathers say, wow, I, I learned something from my children. By the way, so I, I mentioned that there was a debt that if you carried your parents on your shoulders the rest of your life, you cannot repay the debt. Except, the Buddha says, if you could teach them the principles of Dhamma, then you can repay the debt. So the value of spiritual 
information that relieves their, their suffering as well is so valuable that you can repay the debt that you owe. And it's more valuable than uh, material sharing or sharing in sickness because it uh, pervades the whole being and it will pervade any being in future in the future lives. So this is something to reflect on. It is a central issue in many, many, many people's lives. So this is just one of the benefits, the blessings that the Buddha is listing off. And that alone could unravel so much suffering, both for parents and for children. And all parents, of course, have parents as well. So your mother and father have a mother and father. They're going to have to work out their relationship to their mother and father. And if you have children, you're a mother and father, and you're going to have to work out your relationship to your children. And you're going to also have to hopefully inform them that they, they should work out their relationship with you and that you should urge them to realize that if they have resentment and anger towards you, they need to free themselves from that because maybe you have been less than skillful, but you can do them a favor by saying, you know, you won't, you won't gain anything by being resentful or angry towards me by that. And I wish you well, so that you must be your own mother and father now and uh, be careful and skillful with yourself. To look after spouse and children is the next blessing. And so, yes, a wife, a husband, and children can be a blessing. And by the way, you shouldn't misinterpret the, the fact that monks leave their partners and children or never have them doesn't mean that there's something intrinsically wrong with being married and having children. It means that if you are married and having children, then you need to look after them well, and you need to do it thoroughly, deeply, and skillfully, and with great love and devotion. And this can be, if you do it, if you're resentful of it, if you're burdened by it, if you are not infusing it with energy and creativity, then you will suffer because the, they will feel it. They will feel that you don't care, that you are not putting in your fair share into this. And so they lose interest. They, they are not motivated by this. And then the marriage and the relationship to the children becomes stale and they drift away. And of course, this is a great disservice to one's wife or husband and children. So these are your deep and close relationships, your mother and your father, even your grandmother and your grandfather, your children, and maybe even their children as well. So you're talking about five, six, seven generations, perhaps. You're in the middle of maybe two or three behind you and two or three in front of you. And these are all very, very close to you. And these are high duties, but not duties 
as grand burdens or terrible things, but something to, if you can have the right attitude towards, will feel like a blessing to you. So this is important that you bless your life. If you're, if you're married and have children, that you, you worked to make this into a blessing rather than a tragedy or a burden, something you're resentful to. And if you feel inadequate to it, then you need to learn skills and you need to inquire. And by the way, so looking into the teachings of the Buddha will give you many, many strategies and skills for being in the household life. So the Buddha isn't merely a teacher of esoteric spiritual uh, feats, special states, supernatural states of mind or something like this. This is certainly a big part of his teachings, but he is also aware that most of the population of the planet will never find their way into these supernatural, supernormal kind of mental states. And they have to live in the world of duties and children and parents and jobs and employers and employees and money and how to deal with the various ups and downs of life and fortune. And he is full of great ideas for this, lucid ideas for this. So if you're not aware of that, then please realize that much practical advice can be gleaned from the teachings of the Buddha. And uh, they work very, very well. Uh, you know, this is 2,500 years later, and the types of advice he's giving is perfectly appropriate for this time. So we can make problems in marriages with children. We can make problems with our parents. Or we can turn it around and we can aspire to make it a blessing, to bless our lives. And when we bless our lives, then you will find uh, that your relationship changes to other people. I can't say that it's magic that when you change and become very skillful, that everybody around you will suddenly become very skillful. It doesn't necessarily work that way, but quite often when others sense that you have no animosity towards them, you're not stubborn, you're not judging them heavily, they start to relax and feel safer in your presence. And they often change. So you can bring about change in the immediate world and sometimes on a vast scale by changing your, yourself. The working towards changing yourself is not necessarily only your benefit, but your relationship with everybody else changes. And you can see that there are great figures in history who have changed millions or even billions of people's lives because they first inquired deeply into their own natures and inquired seeking higher being. So some of the great religious figures, some of the great philosophical figures, and of course the Buddha himself, affects millions and billions of people because and only because they inquired deeply into their own well-being and sought that. So your inquiry, your journey into the spiritual world will also 
change and alter your relationship to other beings. The last of this little section of blessings is to engage in a harmless occupation. This is right livelihood. And harmless occupation is, is nice to aspire to. I would say that, that it should, it's not always easy to uh, get the perfect job. And you don't have to get the perfect job. But you have to avoid jobs that are very destructive to other beings, that are essentially immoral or dishonest, exploitive. And the Buddha does go into a bit of this types of livelihoods that are not conducive to your well-being or the well-being of others such things as making poisons and weapons, intentionally weapons that are intended to kill or injure. And to abstain from types of livelihood that involve the killing of people and animals. This is radical because in many places in the world, killing of animals is accepted as not a problem. And in fact, most cultures from the beginning of time have indulged in war and they differentiate the killing of a human in war from the killing of a human in peace. And they differentiate the killing of a human that is not of your tribe, your country, or your moral code from those who are. So we indulge in uh, some places think it's perfectly good to put people to death if they've committed certain crimes. And you may think, you know, justify well, so, you know, a serial murderer, what are you going to do? You've got to kill him. <laughs> but it was only very recently that in, uh, in many societies that people would be put to death for very small things. The, I think the last child was hung in... England, London, in the 1860s for stealing a loaf of bread. Now, when we think about that, that is, that appalls the modern mind. That is simply unacceptable. That child was maybe eight or nine years old. Uh, I think at the time they thought it was perfectly appropriate. You can't have children stealing things, can you? <laughs> you, you must execute them. <laughs> there are all kinds of uh, cultures that think now the Buddha is saying, that, you know, this is killing another human is not the solution. Now we have terrible dilemmas because of terrible situations which lead to war and so forth. The Buddha is saying that amongst the enlightened, so there are four stages of what we call enlightenment, but at the, even at the first stage, one can no longer uh, kill. It's not that they don't, they can't. So you become a natural pacifist at the first stage of enlightenment. You, you can't justify in your mind, you, you, don't, you can't justify the killing of others. 
And this would go even to the extent of losing your own life. And he, he says it's pretty radical. He's very clear on this. He says, not for the sake of your life or anybody else's do you kill. And so this is a radical, absolutely radical. It's no, no culture in history has understood that, embraced that, not fully. But there have been individuals in history that are committed to non-killing under any circumstances. There are quite remarkable stories and quite outside of Buddhism as well of uh, some of the, some religious groups in uh, the West have taken the uh, early Christianity as very serious. And of course you recall uh, the early Christians being <laughs> fed to the lions and so forth in the Roman Colosseum. Uh, and some have taken that very seriously. In the Russia of the Tsars, there were various religious communities who refused to enter the army. And they were very heavily persecuted. They were whipped in public and they still refused to enter into the killing of other beings. There are a number of Christian societies in the West that still refuse to uh, participate in war. And they, to this day, they're, they're put in jail for that, for being pacifist. You'll also see that in Buddhist countries, they do have armies and some people go to war and they, they justify it in various ways. But the Buddha doesn't let you off the hook for, even in a just war where, where, where somebody is invading your country and you, you take up arms to, in a, in a tending, attempting to defend yourself. And he doesn't say, he, he doesn't say that it's, it's okay that, that you're destined for heaven. And you'll see quite often in... Uh, kind of nationalistic spins on Christianity as well, that, that soldiers dying in battle for their country are sort of swept up into heaven. Buddha specifically talks about this and says, no, it's, it is not okay and you're not free from the consequences of this and your, your consciousness in battle when you're willing to kill is also tainted and may have very negative results. This is a very drastic, hard to process thing. And I can understand if anybody's listening to this and they think that can't be, it just doesn't work, you know, etc. I understand that because when you first encountered this idea, it's, it seems terribly radical and it is. But that's, as the Buddha says, the nature of enlightenment, it is, it is radical and it is, it is hard to understand as a human because it's not really human, it's superhuman. So we see this and it, it challenges you to question your values. So the Buddha in giving you the blessings is also challenging you to say, you know, some of these blessings require some deep introspection and a transformation of how you go about the world because humans have instincts. And I would say the, the negative emotions are instinctual. You'll see this in animals as well. Greed and hostility, anger and so forth, the impulse to 
violence and killing is both in the animal and in the human. And it comes naturally. You'll see babies, furious babies, <laughs> greedy babies, <laughs> greedy toddlers, furious toddlers, furious teenagers, greedy teenagers, greedy old men, furious old men. <laughs> And they didn't train in this. It just comes naturally. So the Buddha is saying, this is not the natural emotions. And he is also saying, you can conduct yourself in this world without relying on what the natural emotions, and it's worth your while. It's only in the human dimension that you have the opportunity to train yourself, that you're self-reflective and you can get this message and you look into yourself and change yourself and aspire to trying to re not to be just naturally triggered that what comes naturally is not necessarily the best. And so this is part of this discussion we had before of the development of skills and discipline and relentless self-training. So you can train yourself out of these negative reactionary emotions. And it's not always easy to understand, but sometimes you have to proceed from trust. You, if you have a sense, well, the Buddha is a very advanced human, very exalted, very great reputation in history. And quite often very wise, impressive people praise him. So and maybe I should give it a, a try, in for a penny, in for a pound, you know. Give it a shot, see what happens. And in this, you might expect resistance as well. Not everybody around you is going to agree with you. And if you bring this up happily in a little conversation at the restaurant or with your buddies while you're watching television, you might get a lot of feedback, a lot of resistance. So you might spare yourself some of the... Uh, wasted breath. It's not something that everybody needs to agree with you on. And quite often it's a waste of your time to advocate for it. So we're, we're, not, we're not proselytizing. We're not knocking on doors saying, have you heard the good news? This is a very self-motivated path. And you have to realize that it takes everything you have to do this. And others if they're not fully willing, it's not something you can do for them. And quite often you will fail to convince them. However, if you can make yourself an example and find yourself well and happy and peaceful, others might start to think, well, maybe there's something to that. You know, maybe I should give it a shot. Maybe they start asking you some questions. And you may not even feel the capacity to answer their questions. And quite often it's a very good idea to just refer them to somebody who can answer their questions, who is living Im deeply immersed in Dhamma, who is full of the suttas, etc., so that you can get good advice from them. You don't have to be a teacher. Your job as a student of the Dhamma is full-time. If you eventually are suited to the, to the 
possibility, then you might teach, but uh, you're not under any pressure to do this. And it's not a, it's, there's not a time pressure. What the urgency is to get on with your own training and your own practice and taste some of the experience so that it's actually an emotional transformation. And then if and when the opportunity arises, and there's, in life, there just are opportunities that, that come your way to share some of this in a skillful way, then that is also of great benefit to you. So it's one of the blessings of life to be able to share Dhamma that has benefited you with, with others as well. So I would like to leave that today for your reflection, and we will continue with more blessings in the next talk. <laughs>